to another episode of Bad Impressions. I'm David Shola. I'm joined, like always, uh, by Ryan Farley and, and Lee Elliott. Uh, we've got a great episode for you today. We're going to talk um, with Luigi Ferguson uh, a little bit about kind of the, the changes in the landscape in, in e-commerce and what that means. And uh, so if you're at all interested in e-commerce or had to do anything kind of remotely tangentially about that, um, this will be a great episode for you to stick around to, to the final end. And with that being said, uh, Luigi, do you want to kind of take the floor and uh, introduce yourself and tell everyone a little bit about yourself? Yeah, by all means. So thank you. Definitely for the intro, as well as for having me. But for those who may not know me, which I guess is probably everybody at this point, my name is Luigi Ferguson. No, I do not know where Mario is. Please stop asking. I'm currently the senior manager of digital marketing at McAfee. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm coming up on about 17 years doing digital marketing. So back when the dinosaurs walked the earth, I was there, logged into an, you know, a platform trying to change bids. And um, and that that was the first day. Tremendous, yeah. Well, we we love people with a, a depth, breadth, and length of experience. You know, with with age comes wisdom, certainly. And time, time in market. Sorry, we're not even supposed to say age anymore. I think it's time in the job market. You know, someone could have twenty two years of experience and be twenty four years old. For all I know, <laughs> <laughs> um, Luigi, if you want us to assume that you're seventeen years of experience going on on twenty one, we will. Perfect. Yeah, no age is mentioned on the podcast, especially since I'm secretly 11 years old. <laughs> Come, comes out, says, cut the cord and give me a laptop, you know, just ready to go. Yeah. You brought to our attention a great place to start out, which is there's been so much hyperbolic talk about the, quote, acceleration into the e-commerce world that COVID created, where we thought it would take us 10 years to get where we are now with just portions of good on goods online, but... It is slowing a bit on the e-commerce side, apparently. You know, as more states begin to open up, you know, you're going to start seeing people exhibit previous behaviors. So whether it's going back into the office, whether full-time in our hybrid mode, or beginning to participate in more outdoor activities, whether it be professionally or recreationally, as a result, you're just in the habit of stopping to get something. You don't need somebody to deliver something if you're already in route in order to do things. So we're certainly going to see elevated use of e-commerce, especially as more and more platforms and, um, and partners and services are stood up to try to make that easier for us in more categories. But yeah, I mean, it, it wouldn't make sense if we saw people continue to operate at pandemic levels post-pandemic. Do you think that operations will revert back to this pretty well naturally? Or are people going to respond normally? Or might there be some continuation of irrational exuberance around e-commerce with people taking like the least delivery friendly goods and still trying to force it? Do you think we'll have attempted milkshake delivery soon or are people going to dial it back? Um, so you actually can get a milkshake delivered, but I don't recommend it because after 45 minutes, it's no longer milkshake. It's just milk. But no, I mean, so so think about it, right? We have lots of different parties who are involved. And if you are an agency, you're completely bullish about e-commerce. It's never going to end. This party just started. Why are you putting your pajamas on, right? If you are a platform that's trying to sell into retailers, you're probably also trying to show them how they've been missing the boat and how they need to get into the boat before the boat sails. But if you are a brand, you're looking at your data every single day. So there's a good chance that you're already starting to see some of that softness. You're already seeing that 
your inventory isn't turning as quickly as it used to. You're seeing that your warehouse is now being more stocked than it was previously. So from that standpoint, you don't have that need to push as much as everybody's willing to pull. So I think it really is in the customer's hands, right? If they continue this kind of omni-channel behavior where part of them is getting things delivered and part of them is picking things up, then I think we will see some continued upticks in consumption. But I think there's a, a reality that by Q3, things will start looking you know, a lot more like they did before. And I think what's going to be also interesting is just as these big retailers have kind of learned from a pretty much order pickup or online delivery kind of service of of how much that can buoy actually that their business or same source sales or, or however they really want to like future capture it. But as people kind of go back to normal, the pendulum is not going to swing all the way that far to where it was. I think it's going to be kind of somewhere in the middle where there is probably going to be way more order online in-store pickup for the instant gratification kind of thing. And I think there's going to be some stores as hubs as as a, as a kind of an, an approach. And I think Target's been doing that or, or attempting that probably for, for a little bit as their showcase warehouses for, for certain products as well. So question is, is that still all going to be counted as e-commerce just because it was maybe purchased online? Uh, maybe it should be, but it's also not being delivered. So it's kind of different in another way. So I think it'll be interesting to see who classifies what as what as like a thing's going to go back to this, like this is now like the new like status quo. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're going to end up seeing people being counted based on the different touch points that they that they prefer. So if your app only, if your app and website, if your app website store, if your store only, and then they're going to look at how those different cohorts behave as time goes on. But from an attribution or um, a budgeting or funding standpoint, I think it's going to be it's how you start. So if the POS caught you, then you're in store. But if you started online, even if you did it right before you got to the parking lot, you're considered, you know, an, uh, an e-commerce transaction and they'll try to, you know, probably work hard to figure out those swim lanes. They're not going to like polygon their, you know, their their parking lot to kind of capture those individuals. I mean, I had a, a most recent story that over the weekend. I, I needed a new Chromecast and I was just going to swing in into Best Buy and pick it up. And I walked in and it wasn't anywhere that it needed to be. And I just like hopped back into the car and I was like, well, it says it's in stock and I couldn't find it. And no one really wanted to stop and help me. So I'll just order it and come back. And that's exactly what I did. I was physically in their store to make the purchase and had to go like into the car, ordered it, and then said, I'll just be back in an hour, I guess. But you didn't ask anyone for help. No, I wasn't just going to stand around like because everyone was like helping other people. And it's a pandemic, Ryan. I'm not just going to like hover six feet away from someone and expect them that I needed help. <laughs> you know, like it's kind of weird. So we need a name for that right? because they were showrooming. And then there was web rooming. So we need a name for when you go into a store, you see that you're not getting the, the, the level of service that you want. So then you go back into your car, you do it online. So that way you can go ahead and get what you want. Yeah. I mean, I found the spots where the product should be. And they were in three different like locations. And they just were like sold out of their on and this could be also to the showcase warehouse kind of approach. It's like they could have been in the back for online delivery and, and shipments out and not allocated to be on the floor. And so that could have also been something that, that was going on. And I wonder also in this future, in terms of allocation, 
how easy would it be for them to shift stuff back and forth from it's in stock to it's not in stock, you know, and, and those kind of things are, again, I'm sure there's a, a lot of smart people dealing with, you know, infrastructure and those kind of things in terms of product allocation. But now that's another thing that they're going to have to move back and forth. Is this allocated or is everything just what's in the store can be sold right then, you know, moment of, of uh, a purchase for, for a walk-in customer or is some portion still you know, allocated and how quickly does that refresh for, yeah. for online, like logistics yeah. and those kind of things. What if their POS refresh is perfect, but some guy got the last one and then had a lot more shopping to do. And there's <laughs> just a guy walking around with the last Chromecast and you're, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. So- or, or what about like, you know, loss prevention and like a handful yeah, of them right. grabbed legs and like walked out of the store, you know, like then your POS system isn't right even if it's perfect in a perfect system like it's still not accounted for unless they do inventory every night and no no company's ever going to do that well so I, I know that there are some companies that have different thresholds so if something is marked in stock and it doesn't tell you the actual quantity they have some kind of algorithm that says here's a typical sell-through by units per day so if we have less than one day's worth and we don't have replenishment coming soon then we're just going to mark it as non-stock. That way they know that they don't have to promote it. It's still going to get sold out. It's just not going to get sold out online. So I think, I think the challenge is when people try to say, we have, we have three and, but they don't tell you where they are and they don't tell you when the, when was the last time that they updated that quantity, but we have three. Trust us, please. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I think there's like a lot of other like solutions to kind of get around that as a consumer. I mean, my girlfriend's like a super online shopper and when she's interested in something but isn't really ready to make the purchase, she'll put as many into her cart as possible to see how many that they that they'll allow her to add to know about how many are in stock and then remove them. But just like say like, "Oh, there's 50. All right, I can take my time." Or if there's four, maybe make that quick purchase and then possibly return it later and those kind of things. That is genius. Yeah, she's she's really smart. I don't know why she's with me, but she's brilliant. In the fall scarcity era, too, that's so good. I was just talking with someone I'm working on an e-commerce business about how fall scarcity has been thrown into the dark pattern bucket. Yep. Which I, I guess if, if, if you, quote, succumb to dark patterns, you're not allowed to make fun of boomers who fall for email scams is my, like, new rule. I don't like the false scarcity stuff, but some stuff that gets thrown in there, I'm like, oh, that's retargeting. But the false scarcity thing, there's even a perverse incentive to do it now, because I was just recently reading some really lovely data that was made public about the problems with your organic shopping and search listings when you actually run out of stock all the time. And apparently on some of the major comparison shopping engines, running out of stock sets you back like seven days of organic results gains. Yep. And I was like, oh. Well, okay, it's terrible to run out of stock, but in a lot of fields, no one thinks anything's good unless you're selling out all the time. So it's like, what are you supposed to do but pretend to have scarcity if no one wants to buy your beauty product if it's not, quote, about to sell out? But if you sell out as a small beauty product, like, you'll never have a chance. I think there are definitely levels, right? So if you're doing like a product drop or something like that, some limited time edition of something or it's a a brand new release, I think that's when people understand if you can't get it because they figure the demand was so high. 
But if it's like that thing that you get every six weeks and you've been getting it every six weeks for the last three years, then no, there's no expectation that it's, it's not going to be there just because, you know, that, that pattern has been established. So I think it really depends on where you fit in the spectrum. If you're the hot, buzzy brand, you're doing a capsule or something like that, you have a celebrity partnership, then by all means, you know, make it seem like you have five of them, even if you had 50,000. But if we're talking about, you know, those consumables that people get day in, day out, it just seems like more of an annoyance from a customer standpoint. And you're probably pushing them into the arms of your competitor. Yeah, especially if your product's like commoditized, you know, like if, if you're not a big differentiator between your product and the other, like if you're out of stock, then they'll just go to the, the other thing. I love the good someone's bought widget that like clearly they haven't, you know, you're like on a site and it like a name and everything pops up. You know, I'm like looking at like some pig destroyer merch and it's like Brenda Sanderson in Gunderwadi, Oklahoma just bought this. And I'm just like, there's a small chance, but I'm generally going to say no. That's my favorite widget. move on to some more e-commerce things though talking about are are with the end of the indoor kid renaissance that's spiking e-commerce here randy how's the streaming and specifically the ctv streaming because that's where all the ad value business going any any news from the front there that's the other thing that everyone has talked about the glut and explosion of in our realm is is connected tv and streaming almost exactly a year ago when everybody was first like 14 days to flatten the curve, right? And it became a lot about we're all at home, we're all streaming. And I mean, we even were about to go live with some taglines of like, while you're at home, watch these videos to do a workout, get in shape. And that got quickly vetoed before the plug was pulled on all paid media dollars anyway. But I definitely think as the new year has kind of come through, And as we're getting into warmer months, but also months where people are, things are looking up and people are going outside more, the streaming and the subscribers gained are definitely plateauing. I was actually talking to someone the other day about the fact that with the online shopping too, volume is just going down and I'm a perennial outdoor kid and not to bring age back into it, but I do love a good brick and mortar store. I'm probably the oldest 26 year old there is like this afternoon I wanted a book so I went to the bookstore in town and bought the book like I don't have time for Amazon to deliver it to me tomorrow like I want it now god you're ancient oh you're so old (laughs) a digital kid loving the analog world that's right (laughs) but no I mean I think from a streaming perspective the hours watched are certainly going down as people are starting to venture out of their caves um 14 months into the pandemic. Getting back to e-commerce and things that are cyclical and, and tied to time, Luigi, you made some great points immediately before the podcast in regards to, we're definitely going through a lot of what's old is new again and seeing a lot of things that have emerged in sort of the hyper enablement of e-commerce era that just resemble things that were part of the hyper enablement of just the initial internet era. And that, encouragingly enough, some of it's getting better. You know, I I would say logistics. We've gotten much better at that. The 
the machine learning, as well as just the utilization of space, you know, all of that has gotten much better than I think what we were seeing maybe at the, you know, the turn of the century. Wow. Yeah, at the, at the turn of the century. And instead of talking about getting something within a few hours, we now have supermarkets um, and delivery services that promise you getting your getting your groceries in 15 minutes, right? So just think about that. You know, we're, we're now at a place where getting something next day is almost expected. Getting it same day is what we look for. And it doesn't matter what it is, right? It could be something that we get every single day, or it could be something very nuanced and, and something that we only just realize that we need it. Regardless of the category, we still have that feeling. We still have the expectation of timeliness. So, you know, I will say that's one area where I see it most often. But then there are some areas where I realize we have so much work to go. Um, so if you look at a lot of these platforms that are standing up, trying to handle these e-commerce ambitions that brands have, a lot of them are just in the infancy, right? So, I mean, of course, there's Amazon that's made a lot of changes, but is also that kid has been on the block for, you know, the longest amount of time. But when you look at a lot of these other platforms, there are a lot of nuances around bidding and around inventory that remind you that even though there's a lot of hope and there's a lot of demand, there's still some work that needs to be done to make sure that you kind of have the opportunity to be able to run a business similar to how you might do it on a Facebook or on a Google. Everyone starts with this thing that I've kind of started calling the public pile, Google, Facebook, etc., which is a term I use in, in whenever I'm talking to like large enterprise ad tech people who honestly seem to operate in a sphere frequently where they're unaware that 95% of the world has time for basically like Google ads, Facebook, and maybe a weird thruple edition. It's tough to scale out and it's incredible how people can get dialed in and drilled down into just what they know and honestly what I've done a lot the past couple of months is help people objectively break out into where it makes sense because everyone does what they know me I'm a balding guy I wear hats I have no other idea I'll never stop hats could be killing me for all I know Similarly, a ton of people in, you know, spaces like beauty or anything with a very image-oriented aesthetic can get so drilled into TikTok and Instagram that, you know, traffic could be hitting their site from anywhere. And it would take them a long time to notice there's other channels worth expanding into. So, you know, in a world where there's so much you can expand and optimize into from a media channel perspective, but also a distribution channel perspective or a cooperative commerce perspective. And, you know, a, an owner of one of these businesses might wake up one day and say, am I supposed to nail down a partnership deal with someone with a similar audience? Am I supposed to look at a new media channel to test? Or am I supposed to, you know, fiddle with my distro and, and make sure that, you know, our, our, our payment experience and everything is good? Uh, you know, where, where do you even start? That's the billion dollar question, right? And I think the best way to answer it is for the brand to be honest with themselves about the resources that they have, as well as their ability to use those resources to be able to, to take on new things, right? So if you only have a few people that have a few hours a day, then doing more channels likely isn't the best benefit. The best benefit is likely making sure that every dollar that you are using in the platforms that you're already in, that you're doing it the best way possible. You know, what ways can you test your shopping feed? 
Are there any images that are better than your previous images? Are there any, you know, different titles or descriptions that, that you can see based on other factors that might benefit you? But if you have um, teams where people are broken up into different channels and different approaches um, and, and they have budgets that they can go and test with, then, you know, I would say it's one of those things where um, you you want to encourage curiosity, right? And there are always going to be kind of a few different forms, to your point. You know, there's sometimes when there is a platform where you can go ahead and go after the audience, but you're not having to disrupt anything else. So it's it's not really about distribution. It's really about just getting in front of a different set of eyeballs or in, getting in front of that same set of eyeballs, but approaching them differently. Right. So so that's certainly one way to approach it. And then um, and then from there, then there are partnerships. Um, so one thing that I did um, at a previous job was I looked at our Google Analytics data. And I was looking at where we're getting referral traffic from. And it, it looked like there were people who were actually writing content about our brand organically. So I reached out to them. I was like, hey, if I sent you products, would you write more about us? And they're like, yeah, sure. And it kind of opened me up to this world of influencers. And I imagine that other people are probably looking at the same thing. You know, they're not realizing it, but there's that customer that buys from them every time they have a new product release. There's that, you know, they are always advocating for them on social media. You don't have to go too far to say, hey, I don't care if you have a million followers. You understand what we're about. So what can we do to just make that easier for you to do that? Um, you know, I think partnerships should be more natural. You know, of course, that's not always the case, but when you can do it, I think that's the best way it happens. And from that standpoint, it's not really a primary objective. It's really just making sure that you're paying attention to the data. So that way, when those opportunities unearth themselves, that you can go ahead and go after it. But, you know, the reality is that there will always be, you know, more platforms, more channels than you can go after. Uh, so it's really about looking at the maturity. Right. Do they give you the metrics? Do they give you the inventory? Can you get the questions answered that you need so that way you can understand what success looks like? Because if you're not getting that, then it might make sense to spend some time looking at your own store saying, hey, am I driving the optimal conversion rate? Am I making it really easy for people to go from my product page into the cop into the cart? Should I consider adding some different payment methods to the buying process um, to remove some friction there? So, you know, I, I really think you want to be thinking about how many people and how much time do you have available in order to go after these things? Uh, what does your budget look like? So that way, if something were to blow up, that you could actually go after it. And then from there, you know, I, I would say you want to let curiosity lead the way. So that way, if something does pan out, that you don't just say, well, it's too small, so we don't go after it. Because it's small, go after it. Because it's probably not as expensive, means it's not as saturated. And you can go and be the leader in that space instead of being the also ran. I think that's a great philosophy for it and also super compatible with a lot of brands desire already the smallness of some things initially to focus on creating the kind of like ultra fans who create that that word of mouth and sort of hard to see and hard to detect and hard to measure zeitgeistiness. There's no reason why one of these small channels, especially if not a lot of people are tapped into and it's a new channel, can't over-index on creating those sort of ultra fans that, you know, I, I know like Airbnb has attested to its initial tiny pool of renters and users being worth 100 people, 
you know, per because of how much they recommended the service and everything. That's, I know, a popular approach to growth, definitely. Yeah, I mean, when, when you think about growth, a lot of times people mistake it by having a large share in a large space. But that's not necessarily the case. I mean, it's really about being able to cut through the noise in the most efficiently possible. That's growth. So when you think about that, if you know that you can reach that TikTok audience and do it in a way that's going to be organic and be beneficial, then you should go ahead and go after that. Or if you know that you understand um, audiences on Reddit, then don't avoid that. Like, go ahead and jump right on in because every time that you do that, you're creating more of a moat between you and your competitive set. And they're going to have to figure out how do we go ahead and do this? We see the competition is doing it. They're doing it. It must be because something's working well. How do we get some of that? And if they have to figure that out, they're going to be wasting that money instead of the money that you spent investing, testing and learning, and then figuring your way through. So there, there are a lot of advantages by being in those small places. It really is about being confident and, and making sure that you understand the best way to do that. So that way you're not wasting money, but also you're not spending $10 a day on something that you should probably commit $50,000 to and actually give it a real go. It reminds me of a conversation we had in an earlier episode with Mike Angered about community and how in this age where you can go and make a Shopify account and sell whatever product it is, how are you differentiating yourself? There's times when I'm like, this is overwhelming. Like someone just tell me what to buy. Like I'll buy it. That's fine. But like trying to figure out like, how do you get your customers in and get them loyal to you? I mean, I think there's certain retailers that do that best. And I'm not I'm not going to say what the secret sauce of how to find that customer is, because I don't think I know. But I think the community aspect sets that apart. And to your point, Luigi, of like, you know, is it worth testing this one thing just to check the box and say you did it? Or should you go for it? And what is how do you differentiate between what is the like, oh, we're super cool. We're testing TikTok versus like, are you testing it? Or are you just like, giving it a small go versus like, oh, we created TikTok content to try to reach the consumer on that platform. Yeah, if you find yourself taking your 30 second ad and just uploading it somewhere else, then you're probably doing it wrong. Exactly. I'm, yeah, I'm a big fan of like the second and third wind or wave of platforms also. There's what's new and there's also what happens and has been forgotten a little. Uh, the theme of my last two weeks is I don't think this platform has a very good ad product at all, which they agree with. They're looking at going to a subscription model. I think that doing really good organic stuff on Twitter is incredibly underrated by a lot of brands at this point in time, because I think everyone's kind of moved on mentally in a marketing mix from it. And I think the ad, the ad platform has certainly been problematic for a lot of sets of advertisers also, but... I mean, that's not a new platform, but it, it's almost like, you know, everyone is busy at the gold rush in San Francisco, you know, not a lot of nuggets left in the stream. Suddenly Salt Lake City doesn't seem so bad. And I love, Luigi, that you mentioned Reddit. I think Reddit for a lot of advertisers and then for a smaller B2B subset, Quora, there are B2B people who have told me that having a Quora account and ask, answering a bunch of questions in their space is a wild gold mine. It seems very small at first. That was the thing. They said at first, oh, it seems so small and like no one's talking about Quora, but they were like, look, I we just we just made an account, actually interacted, answered 70 questions. For a while, nothing happened. 
Now, if you Google the answer to it, the number <laughs> you Google this question rather, the number one answer is Quora because they have incredible organic search volume from Google. And they click in, and like there is your number one golden answer to this arcane B two B question. But the only people who are looking at it are only you know the people who are your tiny customer base. But I think that also applies to retail with like reviews of products. And I mean, I I've always been a hesitant online shopper because I like to try things on. And how am I supposed to know what size I am in this product on this website? And so I think being able to like, I don't buy a product if there are no reviews. Cause like, how am I supposed to tell if it runs small, runs big. And then I think back Luigi to your point with influencers too, of I recently participated in something with a client I freelance with where they launched a line at target and they were like, Oh, just fill in this information here. We'll send you a gift card. You buy this product, you review it. And I'm like, that's amazing. Because if I wanted to buy this product at target, I'd be like, what size am I? I don't know. But I can go on and read through the reviews. And I mean, I'm a frequent user of the Nordstrom Rack app. And it tells it knows what size I wear in most clothes now. So it's like, it's great. I just click, yep, purchase. Great. So I think in that same vein, it's helping people like me who are more try on in person, brick and mortar people figure out how to shop and participate in like the online e commerce world. So I mean, I, I think, you know, what we're all acknowledging is that you know, as customers or as marketers, we ultimately look for a few things. We look for consistency, we look for trust, and we look for service, right? And I think when you look at a brand that does a great job, or you look at a brand that's struggling, you can probably find some threads across those three avenues. Because if I go into your store, and everything's amazing, and then I open up your app, and I feel like I'm in the third circle of hell, then I have to wonder exactly what kind of company are you? Or in reverse, you know, if the, if the app is so polished and, and neat and tidy and everything's amazing, and then I actually go to the store to get that thing or order from your beautiful app, and now I waste 20 minutes, you know, then I, you know, I, I tend to back away, right? And, you know, to your point about reviews, I mean, there are so many things that brands are doing to try to help instill trust. Um, some of them are doing it with sizing or with photos so you can see other people wearing it or, you know, by by trying to have really generous return policies so that way if you do try it, then, hey, 60 days, 90 days, just give it back to us at some point. Um, and then, you know, as far as service, you know, it, it, what I always find is amazing is that we will survey people to death, but we won't actually go and talk to real people. Like if you go and talk to a real customer and say, hey, what brought you into the store today? What were we looking for? Did you find everything? That is how you get that spot on feedback. Now, at scale, I understand it's really hard. And and we have lots of great tools out there that exist today where you can ingest reviews at scale, kind of understand the, the, the pain points in certain stores or regions, etc. But when I think of some of the best service that I ever received, it wasn't some grand, you know, CRM campaign. It was just like one person that decided to own a situation, make a difference on behalf of the company they worked for. And they did it in a way where they actually cared. It wasn't them just doing their job. They wanted to show that this is what we do. This is how we do it. So this is what you're going to get. And I'm willing to give them a pass after that. Right. Because if this is what they do normally, my favorite story I've ever heard about this is ultra non-digital and this before the digital era. But I had a friend in New York whose family at that by this time had kind of an East Coast to Texas bar empire. 
like the Ginger Man in New York, some in Boston, some in Houston. But the the story of the family business that their dad always told was he bought one bar, I think it was in Houston, just bought a bar. Then started changing things and had all these iterative thoughts and took this like very intellectual approach to the bar and, and nothing was working. And one night this like group of five people came into the bar that doesn't get a lot of foot traffic and is pro- populated with, he said, customers he didn't love, probably like more like me. And then like five very cool looking people came in and he says they came in and they kind of looked around and they turned around and leave. And he's, 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 you know, this guy's dad like just ran out from behind the bar and was like, hold on, stop. I will give you free drinks for the whole night. Just like sit, sit down and tell me why you came in and then why you were going to leave. Like, that's it. And he just talked to these people for hours and he's like, guys, like I, like all this only happened because I just basically told five people like, okay, free drinks, but for like, we're going deep, (laughs) you know, like this is going to take time. Like, tell me, tell me everything that like made you want to leave. And so this whole, like, I mean, obviously bars are very undigital, very impersonal, but their dad attributes his entire success in multiple bar building thing to just instead, not six months of thinking through himself and going over sales figures and reading trade journals but just like asking these people who's like, these people look like they're going to spend some money here and be nice. And then saying, okay, well, why is this not a bar for you? Like one deep customer interview. Yeah, I mean, too often great, great experiences are predicated on both, right? It, it's about being able to take that 50,000 foot view, you know, just thinking about that everyday customer and how can you provide a great experience for them but then also have a, a deep understanding of who your tried and true customer is and then finding ways to show them and acknowledge them so that way when they come through, they don't feel like they're being compromised for the sake of all the other people who are coming through as well. And I think it's a very delicate balance. And I think that's why so many companies strive to get to this thing called personalization. But I don't think most people want personalization. I, I think what they want is somebody who understands why they're doing what they're doing right now, right? Because we're all many things. You know, we might identify with a certain gender. We might be a certain age. We might have a certain profession or marital status. But that doesn't matter if my car stopped working a half a mile down the road and I walk into a a car parts place, right? Or if I'm looking for a birthday party, but my kid is the one that's driving the conversation, not me, right? There There are all these instances where we realize that the internet works really hard to shoehorn people into these very narrow casts when we all realize every day and we're reminded that we are a million things simultaneously. So I, I love when, when brands are either radically themselves and you decide either I'm for them or I'm not for them, or when they realize that they cater to a wide audience and in doing so, they have to provide a certain level, but then for the people who are really good customers, they go deeper, whether it's a loyalty program or other ways that they can acknowledge that. It's interesting. Yeah, there's there's kind of two strands of varied authenticity there. The authenticity everyone thinks of, which is, you know, the brands that, uh, is, as you said, are, are radically themselves. But there's also like a, I, I don't know, the, the authenticity of drifting to the middle and <laughs> acknowledging like that that's important too. I think that rings truer than the strange false personalization that 
I, I think is pursued by some brands or, or sort of a, a false appearance of trying to truly in a meaningful way cater to a vast amount of needs when really like, look, it's three different soaps for your shower. Or a, a big a big one that I, I thought was pretty funny was um, there was the, the sort of nuclear arms race of wine clubs and they'd be like, we have a 51 question quiz and we have 17 sliders. And it's like, you have nine wines in stock at any given time. <laughs> like, I mean, what if I just want nine bottles of wine? Checkmate. <laughs> like, you know, like, it's just limited. And what I discovered yesterday is that this false personalization is something that has been discussed as early as, like, there's German philosophy criticizing post-World War II mass consumerism in, like, 1949, that was like, Henry Ford wants you to think your car is unique, but there's just a different hood ornament. Like, this has been happening for a long time. It's been it's been happening for long enough to anger Germans who read about it too much for 60 years, 70 years. So the internet era, it, it, it just, I think, happens with more power. With, you know, oh, a wine club. I, I have 17 sliders, 1 to 10. There's 67,000 permutations of possible answer. Oh. They recommended the thing they have the most in stock this month. Yeah, I mean, that's a whole different conversation about false AI, right? Where, you know, you're led to believe that there is this big machine in the background acting like the Wizard of Oz when it's just like a hamster in a wheel, you know, or, you know, somebody with a blindfold doing a dart at a screen. Uh, No better randomizer than air and the human arm. And the effects of gravity. It's, it's a tough thing to tackle, all of this, and it seems to have created kind of a squeeze for the talent to tackle it, and it's, it's interesting also because you have a little bit of what's old, it's new again, so I think people are looking for, you know, experience in prior realms. There's also, I think, a little temptation to get into the bizarrely hyper-specialized kind of thing because there's all these new tools and platforms And while there was a time in my life where I would have said, this is a Shopify page optimization developer, how can such a thing exist? I am now just violently aware of the fact that Shopify does not guide the standard web developer to make a nice fast page. So we have this whole new class, but there's there's a lot going on in terms of of brands or just groups of people looking to start something kind of trying to figure out, I think, what kind of human quotient they need for this right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I think when you look at it, it building a team is a function of lots of things. And, and really, I, I think it's about time to market, right? If, if you have some runway, it's not mission critical that you get people who are operational immediately, then you have the opportunity to hire for, um, for hunger and curiosity you know, not necessarily skills pertaining to knowledge of the platform, but people who will not turn away and cower in fear when they come up against an issue. Instead, they have just the personality type to collaborate and figure things out and then, you know, work that way. So, you know, I, I think you'll find instances where somebody wants somebody who may have optimized other things. So if, you have, if you've optimized paid search or shopping feeds in, in Google or in other search platforms, then there's a good chance that you might be able to do it well in Amazon. If you've been able to do something well in Amazon, there's a good chance you might be able to do it well 
uh, within Walmart and Target and all these other new marketplaces that are going, you know, that are, that are coming live. So I think it's great to see because as marketers, I think we all want to be able to apply our talents in new and different ways. And sometimes that's not always necessarily about becoming management. Um, there are some people who love the individual contributor path. And there are lots of new ways for people to go because you can be an account manager working at a retailer that's now setting up their, their e-commerce on their site or in their app. You know, you can work at a CPG company or a beauty brand that's looking to go more into the digital space. You can work at an agency that's trying to work with these brands to be able to, you know, go ahead and move fast in e-commerce. So, you know, I, I think that is one of the benefits in the, in the offshoots. And really, it's about having really careful thought about if you get these people, what are the resources available to try to train them up and help them understand? Because if you have three months, you might be able to get somebody that was great in another industry and show them how to be great um, in this space. But if you need somebody yesterday, then there's a good chance that you're going to pay that premium so that way you can get somebody where you can just sit in front of a computer, give that person some logins. And, and know that they'll be able to, to start, you know, driving results almost immediately. That's a fantastic point. It, it rings true with everything I've experienced in e-commerce recently where for things like make Shopify page go fast, you know, I'm like, no, just, no, okay, get someone who literally, you know, quote a rate. And if we say yes, they're like, yeah, cool. Like, you know, give me the access and, uh, you know, I'll let you know when I'm done. Versus there's so much space that, I think there's a, a lack of defined expertise and even still where just someone who's willing to navigate ambiguity well and has shown that they're able to do that in the past and, you know, is, is curious and, and moves through roadblocks, you know, and tries to move through once themselves, at least, you know, um, but is also not a, a barrier and will, you know, like, you know, t- take the uranium and put it under the house and say, no, no, I send it off to those nice people in France it's fine, you know, and your hair starts falling out. Well, for me, that already happened. But would you say that the three days to three months is kind of the range you want to look for for this? In terms of like, um, if you are bringing people on who are kind of going to more explore the e-commerce space and, and you think will be better long-term team members, do you think three months is, is probably the longest time you want to allocate to learning? Could it be longer in some cases? So absolutely, right? I mean, because in marketing, everything is changing. So I think there's that base, there's that foundational education that you could accomplish in, in weeks to a few months. But there's always going to be things that somebody has never experienced. So it's not going to be until they experience it for the first time that they can learn and be better. You know, so hopefully nobody's ever done it, but many people know that feeling of adding your brand name as negative in your brand campaigns in, in, one, in a platform and then not seeing any impressions, not seeing any sales because you added it as a negative. I mean, you'll never do it again, but there are just those things that if you've never done it before, if somebody ha- you know hijacked your products on Amazon and you don't know exactly what the steps are to try to get it back, you know that's one of those things that you can talk about it in theory, but until you actually have to go through it in practice, this is going to be hard to really describe. So you want somebody that understands processes at a high level so that way they can go ahead and do that 
or just all the different gremlins and goblins that end up in, in platforms, whether it's caching issues or data discrepancies or, you know, other reporting nuances or, you know, saving a file in the wrong format. You know, they're just all these things where somebody who's done it for years, you know, they understand a lot of those things. So for them, it, it's absolutely going to be more like three days, but you likely don't need a bunch of those people, right? You, you can probably have a good mix of experienced talent along with more junior talent, just so that way you're able to do more and move fast. address it, the appropriate mix of wisdom and curiosity. Explore like you're young, but try to live long enough to be old one day, like me. <laughs> Given us so much, but we, we do have to still ask you the traditional final bad impressions question where we just grub for more content as you know, blood-sucking podcast hosts. Do it. What is something in digital marketing that just grinds your gears, does it, doesn't thrill you, that you either think could be changed, radically altered to make it better, or should just go away entirely and be replaced with some much more beautiful new paradigm. Wow, I I, I really hadn't hadn't prepared for that one. I think it boils down to people mistaking quantity for quality. I think that's one thing that I would love to see go away. And I say that both on the creative side, you know, when you're thinking about asset development or when you're talking about on the buying side and you're thinking about, do I want to buy 10 billion impressions or would I be better off finding, you know, 10 million impressions that are just targeted to the right people at the right time? And even though we have done so many things in so many ways, whether it's battling fraud or viewability or establishing direct deals and um, PMPs, you still end up with so many people that will point to an impression number and say, why is this number so low? Or, you know, they'll think about, you know, creative and no thought will be given to the audience that it's going to be served to or the environment in which it's going to be served. So you, you end up with this creative that's not talking to anybody, not speaking to them in any significant way, and then people grumble about why the click-through rate isn't as high, why the clicks seem to be of low quality. And then it ends up being a circle, right? Where you keep saying that digital marketing doesn't work. You keep saying that this platform doesn't work. This tactic doesn't work. But you bought all the wrong things or you bought it and you maybe you bought the right way, but you didn't put any controls in place to make sure that, you know, you weren't talking to a, an audience that you had no business talking to, right? So... I would love to see that change. I would love to see that go away because I'm somebody that generally loves advertising, that loves marketing, that loves the idea that at our core, we lie to ourselves every single time, every single day about who we really are, about what we really want. But somebody is able to see us in the middle of our lies and is able to cut through and show us what we really want. And as a result, we are changed forever. And we can all deny it, but there has been that time where we said publicly, no, I hate it. I don't like it. Where did that come from? We're privately, we're seeing that jingle, you know, we're, we're thinking about that spot. 
And that is when marketing is at its best. But that doesn't happen spontaneously, right? It comes from people who are able to understand. And that understanding can come from data science. It can come from creativity, gut, intuition. But it comes from somewhere. That's what we've gotten away from, right? Machines can do lots of great things. I have nothing against machines. Um, I think there are lots of ways where they can be helpful. But when we look at all of these scams and schemes where people were buying ads on phantom inventory or all the ways that fraud still goes on, right? A a lot of it could be reduced if we were looking for quality instead of quantity. It's hard because budgets aren't infinite. So I realized that as stewards of dollars, sometimes we all get sucked in by the hype. You know, CPM that's too low, even though they swear that everything is all, you know, comp score, top 100 sites and things like that. But that is when I feel like our discipline is what benefits everybody around us. The the people that we work with, they get a better experience. We get to celebrate uh, doing a better thing. And ultimately, the customer, they get a better experience out of it. I mean, there are very few customers, people that I run into, people that I know personally that have said, I hate ads. What they say is, I hate bad ads. I hate ads that I see 15 times, one after each other, after after I've already bought the thing that you're advertising to me. (laughs) But as we move into this realm where e-commerce matters more, where we realize that we're not talking to numbers, we're talking to people, where we understand that because supply might be infinite, but our ability to reach customers, that is limited. Um, I, I think it's a great opportunity because we will get better at it out of necessity. Uh, it's just a question of when. I think that's a, a, fa- a fantastic point that you made at the very end in terms of ad inventory is at an infinite level, you know, in terms of if you want to buy it, you can. But the approach in terms of uh, doesn't mean that you're going to break through or make an impact or that your end consumer is going to, you know, have the the cognitive space and all of the other chaos that's going on in the world for, for your message to, to break in and, and, and resonate with them, you know? So I think that that's an absolutely fantastic kind of like final point that, that you made in terms of your inventory is unlimited, but your consumer, uh, very much, uh, is limited in terms of your, your ability to, to make an impact. It's funny, and as someone who swims in some of the most anti-advertising and cynical organic media on Earth, most specifically on Twitter, I saw one of the most anti-commercial Twitter accounts you could ever imagine the other day tweet, I used to hate the ads on my phone feeling so aggressively targeted towards me, but then I got Hulu, and now that I've been shown a million ads for diseases that I can't possibly have at my age or with my gender and etc. Maybe the phone ads aren't so bad. It's Hulu bashing month here on Bad Impressions. Sorry, it's, it's not it's not my fault. Our our you know our last guest hated it. Uh, you know, socialist Twitter hates it. I don't know what to tell you. Um, but it's it's funny. It shows that even the most phone target hating person can can for a brief moment say, well, these were at least things that I wanted. 
So you're, you're absolutely right about absolutely anyone having that moment where they're just briefly illuminated, uh, even if it's secretly, in, in what they really want. It's been another episode of Bad Impressions. Let me see. What, what can you actually do about our podcast? Okay. I don't want to get this wrong and say comment on it. That's that's still not really possible anywhere. You can rate it on the Apple Podcast app. Uh, you can follow us on Spotify. Not not sure what they're doing with this aggressive podcast ad shakeup thing. Um, your friends here have not seen a Yankee dime from it, though. I'll tell you that much. Uh, not not sure what those crafty Swedes are up to. Do appreciate that they said that podcasts. Advertising is more endemic to podcasts than any other medium. So good thing we have a podcast about advertising. If you want to be a guest, if you have any guest suggestions, go ahead and reach out to us. If you have any critical feedback, we'll take that also. Uh, Roast us privately, roast us publicly. Throw it up on LinkedIn with the hashtag lies if you want. Uh, You know, we'll be obligated to respond to that one. But anyway, Luigi, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, It's been an incredible episode, and we really appreciate it. Yeah, sincerely my pleasure. Thank you so much.